In this conversation, I speak about blockchain technology with Professor JP Werner from University College London. Blockchain technology is a kind of database system which allows for novel forms of distributed and decentralized organization. The best known application is Bitcoin. In this conversation, we discuss the fate of nations, banks, and corporations now that we have the technology to produce transparent, secure, and borderless forms of organization that don't rely on centralized authorities to function. So if new forms of government, the breakdown of monopolies, and limits to abuses of authority sound interesting to you, then this is the conversation for you. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast, supported by the Andrea von Braun Foundation. If you enjoy these conversations and want to help support me, the best way you can do so is by liking, sharing, and subscribing. And now, it's my pleasure to bring you JP Werner. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. Uh, let's start with the big question first. What is blockchain technology? Why is it a beautiful idea? And what makes it so powerful? So that's a, that's a very big question, and I will try to, to, to provide a concrete and short answer to it to get us started. Um, at its very core, blockchain uh, technology is a new uh, database system. So it's something very uh, well known, um, and it's very boring. It's a digital database. What it wants to be, and sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it doesn't, is it wants to be a digital database that has two properties. The first one is being decentralized. And by that, I mean having a very high dispersion of information, data, across the various uh, nodes or agents that are members of this database system. And the second property is that it wants to be distributed. And by that, I mean having a very high dispersion of decision-making authority across those same nodes and agents that are part of the uh, digital database. The potential promise and the potential power of uh, being able to um, have blockchain technology that is both decentralized and distributed is the creation of new forms of organizing, new types of organizations that depart substantially from the kinds of organizations, for instance, corporations, that we have in today's capitalist economy. So your your research touches a lot on dis, dis, distributed uh, and decentralized organization. That's the direction I want to go in. But before that, I just wanted to focus on one of the main applications. So what is cryptocurrency and how is it different from the usual money that we deal with in everyday life, the money that we're familiar with? The cryptocurrency is the first large scale application of blockchain technology. Um, and it came about with um, Bitcoin, which was the first time blockchain technology was actually implemented at scale. So that started in 2009. Um, and Bitcoin is a, a blockchain database that aims to be a new form of digital currency called cryptocurrency. Um, it's called cryptocurrency because it leverages some advances in uh, cryptography uh, to create a digital record of who of who owns what, and and to let people who are members of that digital database architecture let them exchange. Uh, tokens representing value. So we can 
use the database to keep track of uh, yesterday Shane owned two tokens, but since then he has sent one to JP. So now JP has one and Shane has one left. Um, and the beauty of blockchain technology implementing cryptocurrency when it works well is that we can do that again in a decentralized and in, in a distributed way, meaning that we no longer need to have a bank in between us that keeps track of the ledger and guarantees that Shane has one unit of currency and JP has one unit of currency. We don't need anymore to have a credit card company that will ping that bank to authorize JP to send or spend that one unit of cryptocurrency that he received from Shane yesterday. We could do that potentially peer to peer without these kind of intermediaries, uh, financial intermediaries that we are used to. Now, this notion of peer-to-peer -peer is, 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 is very complex. Um, earlier claims were made in the industry that all of this stuff was peer-to-peer, -peer, but it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, it comes down to how we define peers. Um, there are uh, agents in the database architecture itself that make the transactions possible. So in the case of Bitcoin, for instance, we need a particular kind of agent called miner to process the transactions and add them to the database. If we don't have miners, it's very hard to actually do anything. Um, so why may, one may argue that these miners, they are not peers, they are not intermediaries. And so the transaction is still between you and I, but still we need other agents. It's not just you and I uh, deciding. It's a very complex architecture involving different categories of agents. So usually currencies are backed by something. Originally, you thought of money as being connected to gold or the the value of the dollar was backed by the US state. So here, we don't have any of that, right? So so what is it that backs, for example, Bitcoin? Is it the miners? Is Do you need to somehow attach it to reality through some proof of work or some computation? What is it that backs the coins themselves? So the notion of backing is... Um is a slippery one. Um, when we talk about backing uh, in the financial world, usually what we have in mind is, oh, the bank has just uh, created a loan, maybe a mortgage. So the bank is lending money to some people, but there is something backing that loan. They just, they just didn't create money out of thin air. And you know what people have in mind in the, in the uh, collective consciousness, even though that's not really how it works anymore these days, is, oh, surely the bank must have some gold in their reserves. And that's because they have that gold that they're allowed to, you know, emit new currency, create new currency in the form of a mortgage. That's what people have in mind when they think of backing, for the most part. Um, in the context of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, uh, there is no such thing as uh, having an asset of value that is being, you know, stored in a vault uh, and against which new Bitcoin currency is being created. Instead, what we have is a computer program. It's a piece of software that's entirely open source that determines in advance how the creation of new currency uh, is being organized. So it's making the whole process transparent and entirely predictable, at least in the long run. Um, 
And the value that is brought into uh, the system to uh, um, to represent the flip side of the coin that is being created is in fact resources uh, in the form of electricity and computer power uh, that are volunteered by special kinds of users of of the database. And these these special users, um, they are they are called uh, network validators in general. In the case of Bitcoin, we we call them miners. Um, they're they're a very important category of uh, of users, uh, and they bring something to the system that that kind of offsets what leaves the system, if you wish, in the form of new currency being minted. So it's like a shared fiction. The, the thing the thing that I don't really understand though is how you start something like this off because when it comes to our our imagination that there's some gold sitting in a vault somewhere that was initially true to some extent right and, and the shared fiction has grown slowly over time where that's no longer the case whereas bitcoin it's rather new right and when it when it started it never started with that gold in the first place do you understand how this fiction sort of how you generate uh, value in this shared set of ideas and beliefs that can support something like uh, distributed currencies I like I like the word you're using. I think I think there is a fictional element to it um, that uh, users have to agree uh, to buy into. Uh, let me pick an example that has nothing to do with with Bitcoin. Uh, uh, there's a, there's an artist um, who decided years and years ago uh, to take a photo, a self portrait, take a photo of himself every single day. I think. Uh, his name is Roman Opalka. And uh, he told everyone, every day I'll take a photo of myself, I'll print it, and then, you know, I'll show it in my art galleries, museums can buy it, etc. What he did there is that he created a predictable schedule uh, whereby people knew that once a day there would be a new artwork by that artist that would be coming out and that people could buy it. So that gave people a particularly clear idea of the total supply of artworks coming out of that particular artist. Um, and what was backing the value of the artwork itself? Not Nothing much, really. It's, it's a supply and demand mechanism. So what was backing the value of the artwork was the belief that this artist was actually a high-quality artist and the trust that that artist would deliver on his promise to actually take one photo per day and not 10 or not 100, which would potentially decrease the value of each photo by increasing the supply too much. Um, so in a way, you, you have this, this fiction in a similar way with Bitcoin, with one minor difference. You don't have to trust a person to deliver on their promise. You only have to trust uh, that the software code has been properly written and that software code is open source; it's public, and so the, su the supply schedule uh, can be uh, can be verified by anyone that has some skill uh, in computer programming. So, if if you could, uh, so Bitcoin's the main coin that people are familiar with. I think it has the highest market capitalization today, right? Is that the case still? Yes, I think it's always been the case. So, what was if you could? you know, boil it down and just take the kernel. What was the beautiful idea? What what did Bitcoin do right? And where is it lacking? 
Um, I think what Bitcoin did right, besides being the first, which probably gave it an advantage, was uh, not over-promising. So what Bitcoin did right is uh, saying, uh, we are going to try to create a very simple uh, system to do one thing and do it very well. Now, what that thing is has changed a little bit over time because Bitcoin is not governed by one person. It's governed by uh, a constantly evolving community of users who have a say on what's happening next. At first, the system was meant to be uh, a way to exchange uh, digital currency peer-to-peer -peer very conveniently. So maybe you'd be able to, uh, you know, uh, buy coffee by paying with your phone and you'd send Bitcoin to Starbucks and then you'd get a coffee. That initial idea never materialized for all sorts of reasons that I don't think we need to get into today. What the purpose evolved to become today is um, Bitcoin can actually be a bet against the mismanagement of money by governments. Hmm. And so it can be a non-government related source of value that people can use to store their wealth, some kind of digital gold, much more convenient than gold, because you don't have to store it, to protect it, to carry it, to extract it. You still have to mine it though, and that's why these Special users we were talking about earlier in Bitcoin are called miners. It's a reference to how gold is extracted. Um, and if we manage to create that system, then it could appeal to people who, for whatever reason, do not currently trust their government or have reasons to believe that in the future uh, their government may not be trustworthy, their government and or the uh, related central banks. Um, and so that is what Bitcoin is trying to do. And that's a very simple and a very powerful idea. Um, and in a way, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has almost become boring compared to other uh, projects in blockchain, crypto, Web3, whatever it's called today, um, because it's trying to stick to this very simple goal and it's not trying to, uh, to over promise or over deliver. So is that what it's lacking then? Is that, uh, would you say it, it's boring in the sense that it's not as capable as some of the, the newer platforms? It's lacking anything. Um, a, a lot of people would disagree with me and say that Bitcoin has to be more, has to be this and that and keep adding features and become everything. Um, I think, um, you know, my background is in, uh, is in strategy. I, I teach uh, strategy, business strategy, um, at the UCL School of Management. And there's a very famous uh, saying uh, in strategy, and that's um, strategy is not so much about what you decide to do, but it's about deciding what you are not going to do. Mm -hmm. And that's how you reach a level of focus that helps you create a clear competitive positioning in an industry, in a market, in a space. Uh, and I think by deciding uh, that it's not going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but it's only going to focus on like K, 
um, mm. Bitcoin is actually uh, um, um, doing something right. And I think the stability of the system, the reliability of the system, and the fact that uh, its uh, leadership position in the crypto industry has so far remained uh, undisputed, um, they are all testament to, to the validity of this, of this thesis that if you can do one thing that's important to people, even if that's a simple thing, if you can do that right, uh, then you don't need to add features around it. Hmm. So outside of crypto, can the blockchain be used to revolutionize? Uh, you sort of touched on this, other parts of society. So I'm thinking politics. Uh, how is the blockchain a disruptor more generally? So there's been a lot of claims about the disruptive potential of blockchain. For the most part, these claims have been debunked by history, at least so far. Um, Bitcoin has not, rev blockchain has not revolutionized all the things that it was supposed to revolutionize. Bitcoin has done a really good job, and we just talked about that. A lot of the other things that blockchain was supposed to revolutionize have not materialized yet. And that is the uh, battle for this new version of the internet called Web3 that people are fighting these days is, okay, let's take blockchain and let's actually push it into the next architecture of the internet to show that it can revolutionize uh, the current architecture and it can become a better architecture. So what is one of the main things that blockchain is supposed to revolutionize? Well, it's supposed to take this initial idea of removing intermediaries around transactions so it can become more of a peer-to-peer -peer thing uh, and apply it across the board. Uh, so you might remember a few years ago when uh, startups were always pitching their ideas by saying, we will disrupt this industry, we will disrupt that industry, we will disrupt the taxi industry, right? Every company was using the, this term. Today in, in Web3, people are claiming that they want to decentralize uh, industry ABC. Um, and by that, they mean removing intermediaries in those, in those industries. Um, this is a very difficult task because there is um, often a role that intermediaries play, and there's a reason why they are there, and uh, removing them may not be a good idea in the first place. Do we really want to have a financial sector without any regulators? Hmm. Or sometimes intermediaries um, may not be very efficient or maybe useless in certain cases, but they may be also very, very difficult to remove for all sorts of reasons, technological reasons, political reasons, regulatory reasons, etc. Mm. Um, and so because of those two reasons, um, removing intermediaries uh, is, is, is now, uh, we, we are noticing that it's a project uh, that is a very, very, that's placing the bar very high. And we haven't seen a lot of industries that have been radically disrupted and transformed by blockchain technology in general. What we've seen is pockets of innovation mm. here and there. Uh, what we've seen is a lot of the grand projects to revolutionize industries failing. Um, one of the big ones that was used as an example 
uh, in business publications for the past uh, few years is Trade Lens. It was a huge project that was spearheaded by um, an IBM uh, software uh, meant to uh, to to create blockchains for companies. Uh, and the goal was to create this common platform for the shipping industry. And so uh, the leading company that spearheaded the TradeLens platform was called uh, Maersk. It's a Norwegian company. It's the, the globally leading shipping uh, company in the world. They wanted to have everyone on board, uh, the shipping companies, the producers across countries, uh, the insurance companies, the banks, etc., to basically make uh, shipping goods from point A to point B in the world a lot more transparent, a lot more efficient, a lot faster. Uh, and they've experimented with blockchain technology to deliver on that promise. Uh, they wanted to decentralize, they wanted to distribute, uh, and they wanted to cut costs and intermediaries. Uh, after a few years of trying really hard, they basically decided to shelve the project uh, just a few months ago because uh, of all the obstacles along the way and and the very the, the lack of traction that the project the project uh, had gained uh, in its first uh, couple of years of existence this was one of the biggest blockchain initiatives out there but that's one of the initiatives that failed that was an initiative that was run by corporations so it was a private kind of blockchain but there's been a lot of public kinds of blockchains that have also failed People are more familiar with them because there's been so many scandals around them uh, or there's been so many statistics published about how very little usage they have gained over the years. So the revolution has not happened yet. Do you think this might be a silly question, but do you think part of the problem is that we, in some sense, didn't evolve alongside the blockchain? So we, we have formed groups always through hierarchies right? And we kind of like leaders. We find them inspiring. There are the musks and so on of, of the world. Do you think in some sense that uh, we just don't want <laughs> to throw away hierarchies and, and generate pure, uh, completely distributed and decentralized systems? I think that's uh, one of the reasons, uh, for sure. Um, there is a profound misunderstanding of hierarchies uh, what they mean and what they do. The term comes with like a negative connotation. Um, when people hear hierarchy, they think, oh, they hear tyranny or they think, oh, that's inefficient. They think bureaucracy, bureaucracy, even though it's not supposed to be a bad thing, is usually perceived as a negative thing. And so there's this assumption commonly held that Anything that is decentralized, uh, however defined, will be better, more efficient, and way cooler than anything that's hierarchical. And I think that's the profound misunderstanding that we have uh, in the industry. Let me give you one example, very concrete example. Um, there, there's a breed of blockchain-based organizations that are calling themselves DAOs for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And they think that they can use blockchain technology um, to create corporation-like uh, organizations that can be for-profit uh, without any kind of hierarchy. So there would be no CEO, there would be no senior managers, uh, instead, what we would have is 
people would volunteer to contribute to the project and in exchange they would be given tokens representing ownership rights and also giving them the right to vote on where the organization should be going. And this this form called a DAO uh, is believed to be superior to traditional corporations by many people in the industry because uh, of its supposed decentralization. Now, one profound misunderstanding is uh, if you talk to people who are part of, 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 of DAOs, and there's a lot of incredibly smart people in, in this uh, space and trying to experiment with organizing. Um, when you talk to them um, and you ask them, okay, what's decentralized about, about your DAO? Hmm. They will tell you, uh, well, we have tokens. So all the contributors can use their tokens, crypto crypto graphic tokens to vote on what's going to happen next. And that's a very interesting uh, association uh, between tokens and voting and decentralization. Um, but what we have in traditional corporations is shareholders. And shareholders, they hold shares. Well, let's call them tokens. Shareholders hold tokens. And what can they do with those tokens? What they can they can vote. They can vote on shareholder proposals and they can um, actually contribute to the governance of corporations. So this mechanism of tokens and voting to oversee the governance of an organization, it's not new. It's actually been around for about 400 years. And if you look at the traditional corporation, you actually have a clear separation between ownership of the corporation by the shareholders and control of the corporates, the corporation's resources by the managers hmm. who are supposed to act um, on behalf of the shareholders. So you basically have a delegation of authority from the shareholders to the managers. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is that delegation of authority is the core idea behind decentralization. Mm -hmm. So traditional corporations are actually decentralized in some in some ways they uh, basically disperse decision making across thousands of managers located in different branches subsidiaries countries and they also have a clear separation of what kind of decisions can be made by the shareholders what kind of decisions can be made by the managers so there's already a fair amount of dispersion of information and decision making in traditional corporations so the bar is if you want to increase the decentralization and the distribution of that structure, the bar is already quite high. And so the assumption that traditional corporations are completely centralized as just one person deciding everything, it's a completely mistaken assumption. Mm -hmm. Now, what we observe in the in the in many DAOs that are supposed to do a better job at decentralizing is actually one, two, three, sometimes four co-founders who were the first people to write the code to organize the project, remain in power for months and months and months, sometimes years, and never relinquishing that power. And even when they do, uh, people who are supposed to uh, take over the community, who are supposed to exercise their rights to vote by using their tokens, they don't because they don't care. They don't have time. They don't understand. And so only a few people who own tokens will end up voting. And it tends to be the biggest uh, holders of, of tokens. 
And so what we end up having with these DAOs is very, very concentrated authority, which is quite the opposite of the initial objective. This is one of the things that I think is quite amazing about the Bitcoin story, right? Because Satoshi, the who we call Satoshi, the founder, the, the, the developer of Bitcoin, was never known and has now disappeared. So in some sense, there's no one there to uh, wrestle and keep control, right, of, of that particular system. Uh, so, but you touch on another thing, which is we have limited bandwidth, right? So we, in political systems, we outsource our decision making to professional politicians, right? And so in some sense, we don't really want... Maybe it's not efficient to have, uh, it's computationally not efficient to have a completely distributed system. And I I suppose that also turns up in Bitcoin again, right? Because uh, there's high energy costs uh, to do with the uh, computation associated with distributed decision making, right? Absolutely. So I think you're you're, you're, uh, pointing uh, out a very important uh, aspect of this conversation. We don't have an example in the political realm of a direct democracy that has scaled. Direct democracy means we don't elect representatives that then, you know, vote the laws on our behalf. We vote everything directly, all the citizens, right? But you can see that um, the computational limitations of that are that we would have to vote all the time about everything, right? Every time the the um, uh, some some government agency wants to spend money, we'd get an email, be like, oh, "Do you vote in favor of of spending this amount of money on this project? Yes or no?" Right? And we'd have to do that constantly, all the time, every day, and we'd have to vote on topics about which we know nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So that that would be very complicated. So, in other words, to to use to use computer science jargon or or blockchain jargon, uh, direct democracy does not scale. And that's why we have representative democracy in the world's largest countries. Now, there's a few exceptions, like we we have a lot more direct democracy in a country like Switzerland, but it's a very small country. So it's it's, it's more an exception than the rule. So when we try to implement direct democracy in a DAO, it doesn't scale. If you ask the members to vote all the time with their tokens, so we don't have a leader, we don't have managers, and we don't have this kind of hierarchy that we hate so much. Uh, it doesn't quite work. At least it doesn't quite work yet. So we we, we see basically this, this, this tension between uh, wanting more democracy, which is a very legitimate um, desire, and then the computational limits of, of, of that. Um, one of the most advanced, successful DAOs out there. It's called MakerDAO. It's also one of the earlier ones. I think it was uh, founded in 2014. So it's almost 10 years old. Um, It's a complex organizational structure with two different kinds of uh, tokens. Uh, But basically what it created is like a a cryptocurrency that uh, has a value that is always one US dollar, right? So it's Mm -hmm. what's called a stable coin. And to manage that system, there's another token called a governance token that the members of this organization can use to express their opinions about where the organization should go next. And there's been a very interesting report uh, written about the uh, uh, problems of decentralization within MakerDAO, uh, published recently in the in the magazine Wired, 
where they explain that the founder of MakerDAO, I think it's a it's a Danish uh, guy called Christensen, uh, has tried several times to step back and uh, give control to the community of token holders to remove that leadership, that centralized leadership. And every time that has failed, uh, and every time there's been proposals to give more uh, control to the community and less control to the founder of the project, uh, this has backfired. Uh, and they explain in what way? Why. Well, that has backfired uh, in 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 the sense that we were talking about. In the sense that that founder was actually uh, deemed in many cases to be the most competent person mm -hmm. to conduct the business of the organization that he had founded. And you know that that it's not always the case, but it's not counterintuitive to believe that the founder of the project would actually be very very good at managing the project and so every time uh, there was a an opportunity for people to express an opinion they were puzzled by the complexity of the organization and they would rather defer back to the founder because they trusted that person to be a competent and wise leader mm -hmm. and so that DAO is actually a very successful one. I'm, I'm personally, you know, a big fan of Maker DAO. I think it's a fascinating project. It's one of the few DAOs out there that I think has been very successful. Uh, but it has been very successful despite not managing to fully deliver on the promise to be decentralized and distributed. It is not. Uh, but it is experimenting with a lot of new things uh, or using blockchain technology. And I think it's a fascinating project to watch. I find this sort of fascinating because, uh, so uh, sorry, I keep pointing towards the negative side of uh, distributed organization. Uh, I will push in the positive direction uh, after this, but I uh, I worry about a system which is completely distributed and decentralized in which there are p perverse incentives. So I'm thinking of sort of like uh, Moloch type problems where everyone is making decisions that drives everyone to the bottom because it's locally good for them and that there's no one who has enough power to right the ship let's say because power is completely distributed but it, it sounds like it's actually quite difficult <laughs> in practice to get these organizations off the ground it is very difficult um i uh, did a study with uh, with a colleague uh, from imperial college um where we were looking at getting those organizations off the ground, the ones that are using blockchain. And we studied a number of them. And uh, we looked at just how much decentralization there was in those organizations in terms of the um, uh, functioning of the algorithms, uh, in terms of the social interactions between the developers of the project, uh, and also in terms of um, having a clear strategic leadership that shows the direction to everyone. And what we found is that there was no project that was successful in getting off the ground uh, that actually decentralized all three aspects at the same time. There was always one of the dimensions that, that, that showed some centralization uh, or a large extent of centralization in the early days, in the first few months of the project uh, and that was actually a predictor of success. So we found that the projects that did really well um, 
we're either using a nonprofit foundation to provide strategic guidance. So an example of that would be Ethereum that from the start was relying, has been relying on the Ethereum foundation to kind of corral all these local, locally optimum, uh, uh, optimal decisions that may or may not uh, form a consistent whole. Uh, we also saw projects that did not have a foundation, but relied on a very small group of core developers, uh, that a group that was in fact small enough to be able to reach decision by consensus. And that's Bitcoin, for instance, worked like that in, in its, uh, in its first few years of existence. Hmm. Um, so. We haven't observed yet, even in the blockchain world, uh, a way to bootstrap a project into existence by fully decentralizing everything. On that note, how would you know, right? So there's there's one, it's one thing to talk qualitatively about decentralization and uh, distributed organization, but if I give you two systems, so for example, let's let's just grab the uh, US government and say the government in China, and I ask you, how decentralized are these organizations and, and how to distribute is, is the power uh, within these organizations? Are there metrics that you can put down and say, hey, look, actually, uh, the US government is, is more decentralized or, or the Chinese government is? Can, can you do that? Can you be really quantitative there? So that's um, that. That would be great to have such a metric. Um, there's been several that have been proposed. I think they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. I am currently working on on developing uh, a metric myself. Um, and uh, what I think should be captured um, in terms of decentralization and, and and distribution is just how dispersed exactly is information in the system and how dispersed exactly is decision-making in the system. So imagine that you have a uh, an organization with 10 people. Mm -hmm. uh, those 10 people decide that uh, maybe it's a startup, maybe it's a political party, it doesn't matter. These 10 people may decide that they want to have no leader and they want to make every decision by consensus. And with 10 people, it may actually be feasible, particularly if they're, if they trust each other, if they've worked together before, if they're friends or relatives or something like that, right? And likewise, they may decide to share all the information that's relevant to the organization with everyone. And when the size is of, of, of the organization is 10 people, it is doable. You can just CC everyone on, on every email and you know, people will, will read everything they receive or not, but at least they will have all the information. If you manage to do something like that, you'll have full uh, centralization of, of information and you will have full distribution of decision-making in the sense that everyone in the organization would be on equal footing with everyone else in terms of what they can access information-wise and in terms of their ability to contribute to decision-making. So no one is standing out in that scenario as the leader, as somebody who's centralizing things. Now, if you grow that organization, if instead of 10 members, you have 1,000 members, you've been very successful, now there's 1,000 members. 
Can you still do that? Oh, you cannot. You cannot every time you have every every time you you, you have to make a decision, gather one thousand people and ask them for their opinion and listen to everyone and then take a vote and accept. It's impossible. Uh, and likewise, it wouldn't make sense to CC nine hundred and ninety nine people in every email that you're sending every time you're doing something. So this is where delegation emerges. This is where we decide to specialize, uh, to divide labor, and all these things that are well-known, have been well-known for hundreds of years. And as we do that, we can just measure to what extent we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, we, we start to establish secrecy, for instance, we decide that the ultimate objective of the organization is not going to be shared anymore with the 1,000 members, but only the CEO and then two other people will know what the ultimate goal of the organization actually is, and everyone else is operating in the dark. Now we would have you know, a lot of concentration of information at the top with just three people knowing something very important and everyone else being kept out of it. Um, and so by, by just counting who can access what kind of information and relating that count to the total size of the network of the organization, uh, we can actually quantify just how much decentralization there is, how much distribution there is. And so I'm implementing a, a, a measurement project along these lines, comparing the decentralization and the distribution of Bitcoin over time mm -hmm. and doing the same thing for Ethereum and for other blockchain networks. And uh, it shows some very interesting preliminary findings. Um, you know, based on this measurement, I'm, I'm actually able to say whether Bitcoin is more or less decentralized than Ethereum, uh, or whether Ethereum is more or less distributed than Bitcoin. And I can I can show how this changes depending on uh, which mm -hmm. period of time you're looking at. And we see some changes. There's been periods where I find that Ethereum was the most uh, decentralized platform uh, and other periods, there's more of those, where Bitcoin was the most uh, decentralized platform. So it's a very, uh, it's a it's a big task measuring all those mm -hmm. things because you need to, you need to understand what really matters um, in terms of the kind of information that people may want to access and the kind of decisions that people have to make. Um, and then you need to measure who can do uh, those things within the organization. But I think it's a necessary project if we want to better understand the consequences of decentralization, whether they are good or bad. I tend to assume that there's a lot of good things coming out of decentralization, but I will only know for sure when I've measured decentralization and I've looked at the causal effect that it has on those outcomes that are presumably good outcomes. Uh, if I found a relationship, then I will, uh, you know, it will confirm my my hunch. But if it doesn't, then I'll have to change my mind. Uh, this is how science works, or is supposed to work. Uh, until we do that, we won't know for sure. And I think this this quantification is also very helpful for uh, regulation of the sector and making sure that we have a minimum amount of consumer protection in place, a minimum amount of uh safeguards in place to avoid uh another you know crisis like we had in 2008 for instance where a regulation failed so if i take bitcoin as an example uh, i'm going to guess what you look at is 
say the number of miners divided by the number of active Bitcoin owners or what how, what's the what does the measure look like there that you can then compare apples to apples with uh, ethereum just yeah. to take the examples so i uh, i do count the agents within the network uh per type of agent so i do count the miners i do count the uh, full nodes i do count the wallet users etc but what really matters is um in the case of distribution for instance uh, it's uh, the rights to contribute to particular decisions in the network. So it's decision rights. Mm -hmm. So what I will look at, for instance, is who has the right to uh, propose a new block? It's a fundamental decision that you have to make repeatedly over time to operate a blockchain platform. So how who has the right to make that decision? Maybe it's just uh, one particular kind of agent. Maybe it's several categories of agent. And if it's several, then I will just count all of those together. But so the the the, the core unit um, of measurement is not is not so much the the type of agent. Uh, in my thinking, it's more the type of decision to measure distribution, and then the type of information to measure decentralization. And then count how many agents have access to these things that are very important. Um, could, could, the I, ideas could I just, could I, sorry to interrupt you, could I jump in? One, one thing that I don't understand about the process is I thought one of the benefits of, so I, I'm, I'm not too knowledgeable about how the systems work under the bonnet. So I, I thought one of the benefits of, say, Bitcoin was anonymity, right? So I could be an individual with two wallets. So is there any way that you can tease this out? Or So there must be some assumptions that you, you have to build into uh, what you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, uh, vast majority of the public um, permissionless blockchains are pseudonymous. So we, we can identify an agent by a public address, public key. Um, but it could well be that uh, the same entity in the real world uh, controls more than one public keys uh, because we cannot match those uh, public keys to real world identities. Um, and so we have to basically make assumptions or we can just go with the information we have and as long as the blockchains that we want to compare are comparable, so they are, for instance, operating under the same assumption of pseudonymity, uh, then we can we can have data that, that is meaningful. And then, of course, we can implement correction factors to try to estimate actual users rather than the number of public keys or wallets. Um, there's all sorts of refinements that can, we can bring to the picture, but you're absolutely right that uh, we it is actually very hard to know exactly how many users there are of any uh, of those systems. We cannot count uh, users very easily. And I would say um, it used to be something very specific to blockchain platforms, but more and more, if you compare blockchain platforms to traditional platforms such as Instagram, for instance, I think Instagram is also struggling to count its users as per, you know, a person with a real world identity controlling one unique account. 
because some people control many accounts. There's accounts that are controlled by organizations. And then there's all sorts of fake accounts, accounts controlled and created by bots, et cetera, et cetera. People closing an account, reopening an account. So there's all sorts of things. If you wanted to have an exact count of how many people uh, are actually using uh, Instagram, uh, there's all sorts of correction factors and refinements that you need to bring into the picture to actually estimate that number. I guess you, you raise a good point though, right? I suppose it's a relatively safe assumption that if you're trying to compare, say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, that the users of both will be fairly similar. So you can assume that there will be X percentage of people with two wallets in Ethereum and the same sort of percentages. Can I uh, um, ask, this is uh, going to sound completely out of uh, left field, actually, um, but just while it's in my head, has your research given you any particularly special insight into voting rights so by that i mean should everyone have a vote on every issue and i i'm i'm thinking not in cryptocurrency here but in actual elections um <clears throat> i th i think the um the answer is no uh there's 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 a lot of uh, uh Research conducted in psychology, conducted in political science and economics, uh, showing that um, there are cognitive, computational limits on, on how much uh, attention can be given to any one issue. And so um, it's actually a very important uh, decision to make in any system that includes voting. Um, how many times, how frequently are we going to ask people to vote? On what are, are we going to ask them to vote? And uh, uh, and who is going to vote? Do we ask everyone? Do we ask a subsection of the population? Maybe they are delegates, they are representatives, or maybe they are experts. Um, and this is very, very hard to get this right. It's very hard to get it right uh, in uh, in a country. It's very hard to get it right in a corporation, and it's very hard to get it right on a blockchain platform. So let's let's pick an example. Uh, should men have voting rights about abortions? Let's say, uh, is is that a? This is maybe too controversial, but uh, oh, here's here's one that may be similar. But on it should um, women have voting rights on? military decisions when you know some large percentage of military personnel are male uh we can ask both together yeah no these are these are these are great uh, questions i think there's um in many uh contemporary democracies mechanisms uh to call people to vote and express an opinion uh, directly uh on a question without going through the representative layer of the democratic system, it, it's called a votation in Switzerland. It's called a referendum in many other places, uh, and 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 usually each country's constitution um, provides a frame to understand when a referendum uh, is possible, about what kind of questions we can call uh, for a referendum, um, and uh, what kind of answers are acceptable uh, when we have these these kind. Um, in many countries, the only acceptable answer is yes or no. So it has to be a yes or no question, right? Mm. Um, and so governments can then decide 
okay, we're going to ask people, uh, uh, before we make a big decision, we're going to ask people uh, what they think. There's a debate in my uh, country of origin, France, uh, these days about um, legalizing um, what is sometimes called euthanasia. So giving people the right to decide when they want to end their life. And there are people calling for uh, any kind of law that may be proposed uh, on this topic um, to uh, to be subject to a referendum, as opposed to just debate at the assembly involving the representatives uh, of, of the people. Because at the time people voted to elect their representatives, this was not, there was no plan to pass a bill on this. And so they didn't get elected based on their uh, opinion on this particular matter. So people think it's, some people think it's a important enough topic to bring it back to the people and ask everyone for their opinion. Yes or no, do you approve this uh, bill to legalize under this and that condition, this new right? Uh, and so these are, these are very important uh, uh, debates to have. And uh, what you see in the nascent blockchain industry is very, very little maturity at this point, and that's perfectly understandable um, in terms of deciding what should be put up for a vote and what should not, mm-hmm. and when and how. Uh, and so, what we see is a bit of a bit of an arbitrary process unfolding uh, here and there. And sometimes the votes are just consultative. So, um, a, a DAO will put up something for a vote, but sometimes the uh, people in control will not respect the outcome of the vote and claim that they just consulted the users, but they still decide to go uh, to choose another route than the one that was, uh, you know, um, uh, voted for. So there's there's all sorts of uh, ways to organize these things, but they're, they're, they're very, very uh, complex issues. One project that I find exciting um, because it's very boring, but also uh, very um uh innovative in, in in strange ways is bitcoin uh if you think of um if you compare bitcoin with a traditional um with other platforms in the blockchain space to begin with um if you if you have a token in bitcoin so you own some bitcoin cryptocurrency you don't have the right to vote on anything mm-hmm. there's no voting rights attached to bitcoin Whereas in other projects, and particularly in, in so-called DAOs, you will have this governance token that will give you a right to vote on where the organization uh, should go, should focus its effort going forward. So does that mean that Bitcoin doesn't have like this, this democracy embedded in its system? No, that's not what it means. Uh, it has actually a much more subtle form of democracy embedded its, in its system, even though it doesn't have uh, a voting system based on token ownership. So now I'm going to compare Bitcoin not with other projects that have a voting system in the blockchain space, but with like a traditional corporation. So like we we said before, um, in a traditional corporation, you have a separation of ownership and control. So the shareholders own the shares, the shares give them voting rights, and then the managers control the resources and decide how to, what to do with them. Now, 
um, you have this clear separation between ownership and control. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at how these two notions are distinguished within Bitcoin, we see something different because instead of having two classes of people, we have three. So um, in Bitcoin, we have developers who actually write the software. We have uh, people who own uh, tokens, the users mm -hmm. of Bitcoin. And then we have this special class of network validators called the miners. There is no equivalent for miners in the corporate world. So uh, the managers who control a corporation in Bitcoin, they are, their role is performed by developers and also to some extent by the network validators because the network validators, the miners, they check the transactions, they verify the transactions, they maintain the integrity uh, of the everyday operations of the system. So the manager, the traditional role played by a manager in a traditional firm corporation is played, and bear with me, it's an analogy, right? It's not a perfect equivalence, in Bitcoin by two different groups of people. So there's more balance of power here. There's the developers, but there's also the network validators, the miners. And now the second role that's traditionally played uh, in a corporation by the shareholders, if you look at who is playing that role in Bitcoin, well, it's a combination of the token holders because they they own what there is to be owned. But remember, they don't have the right to vote, unlike shareholders. And so their role is complemented, again, by the role of the miners, the network validators, because they provide capital to Bitcoin in the same way uh, that shareholders provide capital to a corporation, but they provide capital in the form of computing power and electricity, not money. And so instead of having just shareholders, it's one group of people uh, that own the corporation in Bitcoin, that role is played by, against a balance of two different groups of people, token holders, miners. And so we have a lot more balance in, in those two functionalities that are traditional. We have more balance in Bitcoin that we have in a traditional corporation, even though we don't have voting based on token ownership. So these differences, they are subtle, sophisticated, and they have enabled Bitcoin um, to use um, this mechanism called proof of work, which explains why we have miners to create uh, an organization that in many ways has more decentralization built in and more distribution built in than a traditional corporation. And that is something that other DAOs and other blockchain platforms that do not rely on proof of work have not managed to do. And just so I understand, so when you say uh, decentralization, you're referring to information, who knows things about the system. And by distribution, you are talking about authority, who has the ability to make decisions. We've sort of focused primarily on the dis distribution side of things. So how, how these these three different groups within Bitcoin, how, how does the information breakdown work? In that case, well, that depends on the on the type of information. Um, but we can we can pick uh, we can pick examples. Um, so, if you have developers 
who are proposing uh, to change the code uh, of Bitcoin. They will come forward. So first, they will have a, they will try to reach consensus among themselves, among the developers. Um, they have sophisticated measures in place to do that. Um, they have public debates online, offline. Um, they have peer review systems in place to work, rework, and re rework any code proposal. Uh, but once they have reached sufficient consensus, they will uh, have to convince the miners uh, that that code should be implemented. So they cannot, like the CEO of a company, the top manager of a company, they cannot just push a decision alone. They need buy-in from a different group of people who are not developers, who are the miners. Those miners have to basically also uh, show sufficient approval and consensus uh, among themselves that this new proposal by the developers is actually good for the future of the platform. And so both of these groups in that case will have access um, to the code uh, and uh, they will uh, also have some decision-making authority over what to do with that code. Um, and um, uh, you have ways by which miners can express their uh, approval or disapproval of that new proposal directly in the blockchain, in the database, by <clears throat> including a little piece of information in the blocks that they add to it so that everyone else in the environment will be able to say that miner supports the proposal, that other miner does not. And that is public information. So here we will have full decentralization for that particular bit of information because it will be in the public record. And so even the users will be able to see uh, if they can read, interpret the information, um, at least they can access it. They will be able to see which miners are actually uh, supporting a particular proposal or not. Let me jump forward a little bit now because I, I want to, I'm having a look at the time and I, I know that we only have a, uh, a little bit uh, left. So I want to jump into a bit on the human condition. So why are decentralized and distributed financial systems good for humanity? How how do the individ how do the individuals benefit? How uh, how how does how does the blockchain, for example, uh, limit abuses of power? Uh, this this is the direction I'm sort of uh, wondering about. So um, the first the first question is is really, um, I mean, what is decentralized? Finance, right? Before we can uh, before we can uh, assess whether it's 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 good for humanity or not, and I think that the answer to this question is not super clear to me. Uh, I think uh, tr tr traditional finance, tradfi or centralized finance, cfi. I, I don't like those terms, but but they're the terms that are used in the community. Uh, they uh, there's a provision of financial services. Uh, in the 21st century, financial services are, it's basically software. Um, the, they are provided, the software is provided by uh, corporations, banks, for instance. So by contrast with that, decentralized finance should be software that is not written or not owned by a financial institution, by a bank, 
but instead it is written and maintained by a community that doesn't have a leader that controls everything. I think, you know, if I try to understand the meaning of decentralized finance, that that is what I, I can gather from, from the terminology that's used. But in both cases, it's software. And in both cases, somebody has to write the software. So there's nothing magical in decentralized finance. The software doesn't write itself. Um, it may, to some extent, be more automated than the software we see in traditional finance. But I'm not entirely convinced that it's always the case either. When it's entirely automated, people like to, to call it smart contracts uh, because it self-executes without human intervention. But at the end of the day, it is software. So mm -hmm. the implicit assumption, I think, in this discussion is that the financial institution, when it provides the software in traditional finance, that institution, that bank, is always going to be centralized. Whereas if the software is provided by a community, that community will always be decentralized. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it boils down to. The very existence of decentralized finance rests on this assumption. The bank is always centralized, the community is always decentralized. It's a problematic assumption. Um, first, there's like, and we've discussed that in, in the past few minutes, there's many examples of, of uh, corporations that are not fully centralized, as the assumption would posit, uh, because they have subsidiaries in many countries, they have branches, they have thousands of managers making decisions. Um, we also have like consortia of financial institutions that provide financial services, that provide software. A very famous one is the SWIFT payment network that anybody that sends money abroad uh, will probably have used um, to connect banks with each other. So there's more than 10,000 nodes in that network and each node is a bank. Is that very centralized? I don't know. There's many blockchain platforms that have fewer than 10,000 nodes out there. Um, so the assumption that the bank is always centralized, I don't buy it. Then the assumption that the community is always decentralized, sadly, uh, there's evidence showing that it, probably I shouldn't buy it and, and, and neither should you. I mean, we've talked about, you know, MakerDAO, we've talked about the, the, the dynamics that are at play when the community is being asked to vote. Um, do you have a, if I may ask you a semi-personal question? Sure. Do you, do, do you have a pension plan with, with your employer, your current employer? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So presumably uh, that pension plan has savings on your behalf that are invested in, in, in corporate shares. I think by law you have to in Germany. So do you, do you know in, in which uh, corporations you are a shareholder? No, no, I don't. So probably you're not voting when when the time comes. No, hmm. no. And 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 same for me. You know, I. Uh, so so the reality is that because of the limitations of uh, direct democracy and scaling that we've discussed earlier, uh, most people who are part of a community with voting rights will not vote when the time comes. So it could well be that. If in theory, a community is supposed to be more decentralized, in practice, it may not be. And often it is not. So the core assumption of decentralized finance, I haven't bought it. 
personally, and and there's evidence showing that 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 this this dichotomy that is made is is problematic. Now, I think uh, the the idea is uh, if we can find a way to uh, provide access to financial services to people who are excluded from financial services. Perhaps we should call it decentralized finance or, or perhaps just permissionless finance. Then I'm all in favor. And I think it can bring a lot of good things to society, particularly in places where financial infrastructure mm-hmm. is not reliable, particularly in countries where some segments of the population are considered to be too poor to be of any interest to a financial institution or to a bank. There's just not enough money to be made from those people. So they are being denied access to bank accounts. Um, This almost certainly does not happen in Germany or in the UK or in other Western countries, but it definitely happens in many parts of uh, Latin America, Africa, uh, and Asia. And if there is a way to use software that is maintained by communities that can provide permissionless finance to uh, to those uh, sections of society, I think it's a wonderful thing. And it is already happening. And I think the leader, again, I'm a, you know, I'm as you know, I'm not paid by Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't have an employee, any employees. Uh, it's not a corporation. So uh, I think Bitcoin has done a tremendous job as providing uh, permissionless finance um, to a lot of people in the global south. Um, It's far from being everything those people need in terms of financial services. It's far from being perfect because it's extremely volatile, but it has provided a permissionless service uh, in a way that no one had been able to provide before. Uh, And it is not controlled by a corporation. It is not controlled by a government. It is maintained by a community with some decentralization and some distribution of decision-making. It's not 100%, um, but it's it's already quite good. A lot of the other products, projects that uh, call themselves DeFi, decentralized finance, um, are not targeting these people that most need the services. Uh, are mostly used by people who are already very wealthy and are absolutely not in need of uh, of permissionless access to finance, uh, and sometimes are complete scams. Mm-hmm. I hadn't so that's, thought that's about... the state of the industry. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this access, right? So in countries which are unstable or countries where you can't trust the government or you have very little trust in the government, where there's record high inflation, like Venezuela or somewhere, then Bitcoins offer an avenue which you otherwise wouldn't have and no one would, in which you wouldn't be able to access because no one wants to invest in you, let's say, in certain regions in the world. Absolutely. And I've been lucky to, to, uh, to uh, collaborate uh, for, for some time with a with a startup providing Bitcoin-based financial services to, to people uh, in Venezuela and then in other uh, parts of uh, Latin America, a startup that was co-founded uh, by um, by somebody who actually experienced all those things you're describing back home in Venezuela. 
and uh, and I've learned a lot um, um, about about the context uh, doing doing this this collaboration and uh, and you know there is a market there there is a need it's clear uh, and I just think a lot of the DeFi projects are not focusing on that at all sadly. If you look long term, what do you think the ultimate impact will be on centralized authorities by which i mean universities banks governments do, do you think as blockchain crypt, cryptocurrencies take a, a larger and larger percent of the of the pie that these organizations will lose power and lose relevance yes uh i think that um there is a clear threat coming from bitcoin and other blockchain-based projects that are of quality um, for the traditional structure of the nation state. I think in many ways, projects like Bitcoin are piratical. And as you know, I've done some, some work on, on the history of piracy and so uh, and the history of, of decentralization that comes with pirate-type uh, of organizations. And I think what Bitcoin is doing now is seen by many nation states as a threat uh, to something very specific. So the nation state, uh, which is the fundamental fundamental political structure underpinning capitalism, relies on a series of monopolies on certain things that are constitutive, constitutive um, of sovereignty, state sovereignty. Over the years, over the centuries, some of these elements have been dismantled, sometimes privatized. Um, think of how some nation states now rely on private armies. That's not supposed to be this, the case. Uh, if you look at the, at the history of the nation states and the notion of sovereignty. But there's one thing that the nation states have never given up on, and that is the monopoly on the creation of money, of currency. Bitcoin is a direct uh, competitor threat to this uh, sovereign monopoly by nation states on the creation and emission of currency. And I think that people who are working uh, for governments and central banks in many parts of the world would perhaps not publicly, but at least privately recognize that it is a threat. And the response is coming. The response is already being developed. It's been a few years. Um, central banks are thinking about creating the monopolistic sovereign version of Bitcoin. Uh, which, of course, would be something very different. Uh, they call it sometimes a central bank digital currency, CBDC. And the idea is to create a digital representation in a database that looks like a blockchain uh, of their national currency to facilitate digital payments in the hope that, that uh, once that is done, Bitcoin's use case will be gone and there will be no need to use Bitcoin anymore and it will be easier 
to tell people that maybe there should be a ban on sections of the Bitcoin ecosystem because now there is the central bank, central bank digital currency that they can use uh, as a substitute. Um, so I think CBDCs are a direct response by the nation state to the threat represented by Bitcoin. It's interesting you say that. We're going to jump into piracy. Let's jump into piracy fairly soon. But as far as I understood your thesis, pirates act in opposition to the first movers who usually are monopolies, right? So if you think of the Dutch East India Company, as far as I understand, you can correct me on the history, this company was responsible for finding routes and then they monopolized those routes uh, of trade. But here you're saying the story is flipped in the sense that the pirates, the people who came up with the uh, with Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, they struck first. I probably shouldn't go down this line without asking you to first def to define who the pirates are. What, Who are the pirates and, and why is this flipped sort of uh, story happening here? So the story is, is not flipped in the sense that the monopoly on the currency pre-existed. Um, what is, uh, I guess, a bit, a bit more complex in this particular case is that um, there is a government response to the pirate response to the monopoly on currency, which is to make that currency digital. Mm. Right? But it, there is already a monopoly on the creation of, of money. And that has led to supposedly, allegedly, some people believe, a crisis, uh, at least maybe not a global crisis, but at least crisis in, in specific countries where the mismanagement of that monopoly by governments has basically created misery for people. And so the, the pirate response is to create an alternative that is not monopolized, um, that is more decentralized, more distributed, more democratic, etc., community-led, uh, and that basically provides a hedge against uh, the government monopoly in the event that that monopoly uh, might be misused, abused, corrupt at some point in the future. Um, so the pirates in that case are the people who are uh, basically joining one way or another uh, one of those uh, cryptocurrency communities, uh, whether as a developer or as a as a, as a, an advanced user or as a miner or uh, or as a member of a mining pool or or in any capacity, I think people who are doing that um, with that in mind, with that hedging your bets mentality, are actually contributing to. Uh, uh, a, a piratical uh, spirit, uh, not in the sense that they're doing something illegal. Piracy is, is not always or necessarily about being uh, outside the law, but it is about um, contesting uh, the monopolistic appropriation, a uh, particular sphere of economic life by a nation state. Okay, so the, the 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 so pirates are not necessarily thieves or people doing things that are wrong. They're just groups of actors who are who are acting against monopolies in contested spaces. 
Would that be a good definition? I think that's a, that's a very good definition. And the, the, the battle that is taking place in those con contested spaces is a battle for uh, the legitimacy of certain principles. In that case, that would be uh, the ability to have some competition in the realm of currency instead of having a monopoly that implies uh, potentially becoming a victim if that monopoly were to be mismanaged. Can you elaborate on the moral judgment aspect of piracy? So so we, we usually think of pirates as being the bad guys, right? They're the, on the high seas, they were the violent ones that were pillaging seaside towns and attacking government vessels. So are you able to elucidate you know, why is it that we have this negative association with piracy and why do you have a different viewpoint? We have a complicated relationship with pirates. We have a negative association, but we also have a lot of fascination and a lot of sympathy. So look at all the movies that are made about, uh, about pirates. Uh, look at all the children books that are written about pirates that we're supposed to, you know, read to our children. Uh, there's there's, there's this, this complex uh, relationship that we have of, yes, fear, violence is there, but also sympathy. Um, and I think that that comes from the fact that pirates were uh, a lot more than just like uh, violent thieves. Um, if you look at the, 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 the old school pirates, so the ones that would be... Uh, uh, depicted with, you know, in the in the movie series uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, for instance, uh, the pirates of that time they were just uh, as violent as the uh, mercenaries that were employed by nation states to conduct trade. They were, in fact, at times the same people, taken at different times, different moments uh, of of their lives. There's a very famous pirate in the UK uh, called Francis Drake that uh, was knighted, that was knighted uh, by the Queen. He became Sir Francis Drake because after being a pirate, he was actually hired um, by the Queen to attack other countries uh, on the high seas. And so he became a privateer. And the only difference between a pirate and a privateer is that the privateer receives a letter of marquee and reprisal authorizing him or her to uh, conduct their business on behalf of the king or the queen. But the business is the same. Mm -hmm. What is not the same is the business model behind it. Uh, uh, when you get such a letter, the letter basically says, we are the United Kingdom and we claim a monopoly on this route between London and some part of Asia. And the only merchant, merchants that are allowed to trade on that route are British merchants authorized by the Queen. Mm -hmm. Any other merchant not authorized that we see on that route will be treated as a pirate. We will just call that person a pirate. And then if we catch that person, we'll just hang that person on executioner's dock, um, which is not very far from where I live in London. Uh, and so the difference is the pirates believe that uh, 
trade on many of those routes should be free and should allow more people uh, than just the ones authorized by one particular country. So there's this that there's this this parallel that we can draw um, with the conversation we were just having, where today there are people who believe that currency should be the monopoly of uh, nation states, and so no other currency should coexist or should be created uh, on the sovereign territory of that state, but the one authorized by the state. And then we have uh, currency pirates who believe that it's okay to also create another currency called Bitcoin, and then another one called uh, Litecoin, and then another one called this, and then another one called that, and to have competition between these different uh, currencies uh, in a more open manner. And that difference uh, that we had uh, with the sea pirates 400 years ago, we also have today uh, in many ways uh, when it comes to currency. So the pirates then, they produce, they sort of act on the narratives that we have and build some sort of legitimacy behind a new set of rules or, or laws in place. Is it, what's, this, what's the difference between legitimacy and legality? Um, legality is authorized by law and legitimacy is considered socially acceptable independently of whether it is authorized by law or not. Um, a lot of the evolutions that we see over the long term, when we look at particular businesses, particular industries can be interpreted, um, in terms of the evolution of what is considered legal and what is considered legitimate in a society. Um, we have seen recently in the United States, in many of those uh, states in the US, uh, how um, the recreational use of marijuana has become legal. In other states, it's still illegal. And independently from, from that, it may be seen as more or less socially acceptable within those states. So legality and legitimacy are independent dimensions, but they may be related to some extent, but they are not the same. And so um, pirates will typically uh, see as, le as legitimate uh, the existence of more freedom of movement, freedom of competition, um, Whereas the legality of the time might dictate a monopoly on a particular kind of trade. And this is something we've seen on the high seas in the 17th century when people were trading spices um, coming from Asia. Um, this is something that we've seen when uh, radio broadcasting was invented and um, many countries at the time in the West created monopolies. Uh, to ensure that the uh, dispersion of information within the country would would be would be controlled by the state. So the BBC was created as a monopoly uh, in the early 1920s uh, in the United Kingdom, and it remained a monopoly for about 40 years until the 60s. And so during those 40 years, anybody who was broadcasting uh, something uh, while not being a member of the BBC. Uh, was actually considered a pirate radio. Now, who has won uh, the, the fight in that particular radio broadcasting industry uh, around what is legitimate or not? Well, the pirates have won 
Today, there is no more monopoly on the on the airwaves, and it's considered perfectly legitimate to have uh, the freedom of emitting uh, programming over the airwaves and, and broadcasting. You need a license, but it's fairly easy to obtain, uh, and you have freedom of speech. And so the pirates have won, right? The 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 radio the pirate radio stations of the time they've they've they're all dead. They're they've all they're all gone. Uh, none of them has survived. Very few of them got rich or earned any money at all. But they've won the bigger fight for uh, for the legitimacy of free radio broadcasting, just like the pirates on the high seas have won the fight for the freedom of trading on the high seas. Uh, and it's actually now enshrined in the United Nations Charter on the Freedom of the Seas that says that it, about 80% of the, of the seas and the oceans uh, on our planet are considered international waters and there is on international waters freedom of movement freedom of trade and so the pirates uh, of the 17th century they've also won uh their their fight for the legitimate cause that they were defending we'll see who wins the fight when it comes to currency i think this will be a much much tougher difficult fight um because the monopoly on currency on currency is the last monopoly left to the sovereign state as it was designed uh, about 400 years ago as it was shaped about 400 years ago it's the last fortress monopolistic fortress of the nation state and i suppose so I they the, might be fighting for their lives right this might actually collapse nation states the battle will be fierce um and that's also why we're seeing people claiming that now, if we have cryptocurrency and we can create our own private community-run currencies, we could also maybe create our own network states uh, here and there. Um, people understand that currency is very special to the definition of, of a state. So who are the pirates today? Uh, outside of crypto, who are the pirates today? And what are the other contested territories that are exciting? Well, I think the the um, um, a very exciting territory in the last uh, you know fifty years at this point has been the internet, and then within the internet, the web, and I think you know cryptocurrency is part of that fight and actually finds its roots uh, in the history of the internet. Um, some of the building blocks behind Bitcoin were actually um, created, designed, shaped by hackers. Uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, before we had the web, uh, there were people who were building uh, cryptographic tools that, you know, contributed to the creation of Bitcoin um, 20, 30 years later. Uh, and so there's a continuum of, of struggles between pirates and monopolies that we can observe on the Internet. Um, some time ago, the monopolies that had to be taken down were the monopolies of uh, IBM, uh, AT&T, Microsoft, uh, perhaps today it's Google, it's Meta, uh, and it's definitely um, the monopolistic currencies uh, that are that are controlled by by governments. Um, I think another exciting area um, that uh, I see out there is uh, the uh, uh, rules of legality and the principles of legitimacy around what can be done with um, with DNA. And this is, uh, I think, a big, important uh, area that will be uh, 
very defining for the future of of humankind. Uh, who can um, do what with DNA when it comes to um, manipulation, combinations, permutations, um, reproduction? Uh, and there's been already uh, a few important cases uh, over the past few years uh, showing that there is a tension uh, around the ownership uh, or not of of DNA and by whom is the question. Just to clarify the way you define piracy, do pirates act in opposition to capitalism or do they construct the rules of capitalism? How, how do you view the interaction there? I think they are fun, fundamental parts of capitalism. Um, I think the, the relationship of the, the piracies is, is really uh, more than a thing, it's a relationship between two groups of people and, and it's a relationship between, uh, um, between the pirates and, uh, a sovereign, a sovereign nation state and its monopolies. And that is, uh, something that we see in capitalism. We don't see really before in those, in those terms. So that's something that's been defining capitalism and, and its evolution for the past 400 years. We've talked about already about a few industries where we've noticed the same pattern happening. So pirates are not are not against capitalism. They are not pro capitalism. Uh, they are part of capitalism, and they are one of its um, central evolutionary engines. In the sense that uh, it's one of the ways by which uh, new waves of uh, innovation diffuse in capitalist societies. We spoke about how piracy is often couched in moral terms, right? We all, we have this picture that they're the the violent guys, right? So there are certain sections of the population that also talk about capitalism in general in moral terms, right? There, some people use capitalism as a catch-all for the bad things in society. It, it's because of capitalism that there's poverty, say, or it's because of capitalism that the environment is this way and, and so on. So... I think you might have a unique perspective on this. How should we think of capitalism? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it is it a tool? Is it inevitable? What's what's your viewpoint here? What what's your what's your perspective? Capitalism uh, is a particular uh, arrangement between various productive components in society. Uh, it's historically embedded. So it appeared at a particular point in time. I like to think of capitalism as, as being born at the same time as, as the sovereign nation state. Um, so in the, in the early 17th century, uh, I think is where the core institutions of, of capitalism emerge jointly with uh the sovereign nation state so in a matter of just a few years at the beginning of the 17th century we have the emergence of uh the first um corporation with uh shareholders and publicly tradable shares so core institution of capitalism uh at the same time uh we have the emergence of the first stock exchange where people can trade those shares 
at the same time, within within ten years, we have the emergence of the first central bank. Right. So this is we're talking here about you know the first fifteen years of the seventeenth century, and we're look, looking at the phenomenon that that basically emerged first in the Netherlands, in the Dutch Republic at the time, uh, and England, and then diffused. And that model has basically been in place for 400 years. Central banks, stock exchanges, corporations with publicly tradable shares, and then a nation state that's sovereign on its territory to edict the laws, and that creates standards that are unified on that territory. So before capitalism, we had hundreds of different units of currencies coexisting in every European uh, uh, kingdom. Uh, we had different units of measurements, different units of distance, of weight. Uh, there was no normalization, no standardization of anything. And during the first period in the 17th century, all these things change and become actually very close to what we have today. There's been, if you look at that level, there's been very, very little change in the four, in the last 400 years. That's the period I like to call capitalism. Now, is it good or is it bad? I don't know. Uh, that's not how I think about this. What The way I think about it is, uh, is it sustainable? Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, looking at uh, the um, way we are mismanaging, mishandling uh, natural resources, uh, it's not. And the other thing that I look at is, what is it an alternative to? And I think a lot of people would naturally think of communism as the as the alternative to capitalism. I think that the alternative to capitalism, the, the more obvious one to me, is what we had before. And what we had before was a system called feudalism. Mm-hmm that basically was out there for about 1,000 years during the Middle Ages. Um, the alternative is feudalism. I, I don't know that I, there's a lot, you know, the relationship with, with feudalism is very similar to the one we have with pirates. Fear, violence, but also pretty cool. Like let's have little outfits and give them to our children. They can be a little, they can be a knight with a tiny sword. You know, we have this kind of awkward relationship with 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 the feudal medieval times, um, but but I think that society was organized in a very different way back then. Um, I think that uh, our priority should be uh, should be uh, beside thinking about the future of capitalism at this point, it should be ensuring the the the, the survival of the humankind. Um, as we take the steps that are necessary to ensure that survival, particularly from a climate change perspective, uh, we will see if those steps create um, something that looks very different from capitalism or whether those steps are still inscribed within that high level system that I described. Um, maintain uh, a certain consistency. Uh, with with respect to what we already have today, I'm I don't I'm not quite sure about that, um, but I certainly don't think that capitalism is uh, is the opposite of like um, having community uh, based organizations. Um, we have like millions of cooperatives that are very successful in capitalist societies, uh, and so you know capitalism is not synonymous with like hyper 
individualization or or not caring at all for the other or not having any kind of commons that we can manage together we actually see a lot of those things uh emerging and developing and flourishing in, in capitalist society so so there's there's a lot of fine-tuning that needs to take place for these things to happen and happen in a good way and there's different flavors of capitalism obviously it's not one recipe that everybody applies in the same way but i think uh that um the fixes that we take uh, to address the climate change uh challenge which is our biggest challenge right now uh will ultimately decide uh on the future of capitalism but so a priori you don't think that capitalism stands in opposition let's say to us solving the climate crisis or to us solving poverty or uh, to uh, remedying any of these large uh, problems that people talk about uh, these days i think the um the one major obstacle that i see and maybe it's not the one that others will will focus their attention on um is is basically the very nature of the sovereign nation state um which uh at some level can preclude a higher form of cooperation across different parts of the world that is necessary to address the climate change issue so it is this uh uh, this, this prevalence, this, this um, centrality of, of the nation state as the core uh, level at which capitalism unfolds, which I think represents the major roadblock for bringing about the global initiatives that we need uh, to address climate change. So I think, um, you know, the nation state today, as we've known it for 400 years, is under attack from below by the cryptocurrency guys and from above by the uh, climate change driven challenges. I see. And maybe blockchain uh, is going to give us a solution to acting as a as a global community. And that that's maybe the hope that people sell, right? I think that's a hope. Um, I think blockchain itself is not going to get us there. Um, but I think blockchain can be one of the tools that enable new forms of coordination uh, to manage the commons in different areas. And there are promising ways to use blockchain, for instance, to, to manage, uh, keep track of carbon emissions. That's not going to necessarily reduce them, but that's one system that may be helpful in better tracking carbon emissions, which is, you know, it's a small step, um, but it may be a good step. So I want to wrap up the conversation now, and I want to do it by asking you a little bit about the future. And so I have sort of two or three questions that are really wrapped up into one uh, question. So I'll, I'll give you them and then all together. And then if you, if you want, I can remind you uh, of what each of them are. But so I'm curious about... Whether you, can you share your vision for a future where blockchain-based governance is the norm? And then at the same time, what does your utopia look like? And what does your dystopia look like? Okay. Um, 
So I think my dystopia, I'll start from the, the last uh, leg of your question. Uh, my dystopia uh, would be a society, a society in which every uh, aspect of life is managed by software, whether it's blockchain software or any other kind of software, um, doesn't make a big difference. I think this idea that uh, <clears throat> software is, is not just eating the world, as the famous uh, saying goes, uh, but is potentially eating um, every kind of interaction that we have is uh, paving the way for dystopia. Um, the utopia would be a society in which we used software where only where it is absolutely uh, and, and productive. And in those areas, and there's many of them, uh, we managed to have the software be maintained by community organizations rather than by for-profit organizations. Um, it can be, um, or it can be for-profit organizations as long as they're uh, run as cooperatives, meaning that operation um, is owned by its users or by its suppliers, but not by like a different class of, of, of shareholders that have no other relationship um with the organization um i think if we manage to 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 do that and there's you know great examples of that um in various forms out there are uh, ranging from uh, uh chain organizations that are essentially cooperatives uh but also more traditional open source projects like linux wikipedia things like that i think that that would that would that would be a fantastic uh improvement um and cooperatives can be for profit uh importantly uh, it's not a it's not like a it's not a different term for like a communist uh, uh state-run organization it is it is a capitalist organization but it's owned by its users or its suppliers um and then where are we going i think we are going um to to hit the target somewhere in between those two um, but I think there's going to be huge discrepancies across countries uh, in terms of how close to the dystopia we are and how close to the utopia uh, we are. Um, I think there's a clear, uh, we've talked about the attacks from below and from above on the nation state. We could also discuss the attacks uh, coming from various sides uh, on democracy, um, which used to be a very exciting concept for everyone. Um, but doesn't seem to be as sexy anymore, um, or at least not not the way it used to be. And that's that's concerning because we don't really have uh, a viable alternative that I would consider exciting. Could, could you clarify uh, that statement? What do you mean by these attacks on democracy that we're not worried about? Um, I mean, there's 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 large uh, countries in the world that concentrate most of its population that are that are not, uh, you know, either formally or or at least informally that are not 
you know, uh, democracies at this point for all intents and purposes. And so we see a shift uh, in terms of the balance of geopolitical power, whereby in the past, uh, and particularly until, uh, you know, af after the, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, for a period of 30 years, if all the democracies in the world uh, gathered and said, well, this is what we should be doing, you know, that's a claim that would carry a lot of weight. Today, if all the democracies that are left in the world gather and say, well, this is what we should do, mm. it doesn't carry as much weight or it doesn't carry any particular weight coming from the fact that these countries are democracies. That's not what gives weight to the claim anymore. And so uh, we don't have a, a, a viable alternative to the way we have built the, the representative democracies uh, yet. Uh, I mean, the alternative that we're familiar with is the way that uh, corporations are run. Corporations are not democracies. Uh, we give tokens called shares to people who have to buy in and they get to vote, right? Um, if the alternative is 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 a is a token-based voting system uh, that requires uh, buy-in in the same way that it does in in traditional corporations. Then, uh, then I think we are headed from some uh, some bad times. <laughs> well, JP Verner, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you so much, Shane. Uh, it was a great conversation.